Good morning, Outlook family. Sure is good to see everyone this morning, whether you're here with me in the room or you're joining us online. Uh, in fact, I just had a fun little thing happen this morning. Someone said, hey, I have a friend up in Fort Wayne who tunes in every week. Would you give her, would you talk to her for just a second and say hi? Because she, she's loving uh, being a part of our church from a distance. And it was a total blast to just say hi to Louise. So Louise, if you're watching right now, how's it going? It was great talking to you this morning. Uh, it's just fun to realize that uh, even though we're here together in the room, there's a lot more together happening than just what we see here. And all of it, all of it, here and everywhere is a blessing. Amen? It really, really is. Well, in this series, Open Hands, Big Hearts, we are taking a look at everything we have. Our wealth, our time, our possessions, our talents, our attention, and we're realizing all of it is a gift from God. That each of us is called to be good, generous stewards of everything that we've been given, and that we should be using these things to do good and to spread love. And so in this series, we're answering that call and we're looking for ways to make the most of everything we have, to be people with open hands and big hearts. Last week, we got started by reminding ourselves that, hey, it's not about me. We looked at what's come to be called the parable of the rich fool, and we reminded ourselves it's not all about me. Today, we're going to be reminded that it's all about love, and another parable that we'll be turning to in just a moment. It's found in Luke chapter 10. In fact, if you have your Bible or a Bible app, feel free uh, to read along. I'll certainly have the verses up here on the screen as well. This passage is uh, not unlike the one from last week. Jesus is teaching, and then someone from the crowd makes a demand or a request, or in this case, asks a question. So I'm in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, tell me about your way, life in your kingdom, what it means to walk in that way. What is life in God all about? If I want eternal life, life in him, what is that all about? That would be one way of reading the expert's question. Perhaps another way might also be, he just wants to know, what do I need to do to get into heaven, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me the checklist, Lord. Experts in the law were really, this is what they were actually experts in, right? What is your theory on what I must do, minimum requirement, to get into heaven? Verse 26, Jesus asks, well, what is written in the law? Those first books of what we call our Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. What is written in the law? How do you read it? He asked. So Jesus immediately takes him back to the source. In other words, it's not about one person's opinion. It's not about all the honestly countless and pointless theories of everyone else. Jesus says, go back to the Word of God. Amen? This is exactly where the Son of God points this expert in the law. And so this was the expert's Answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, uh, all your strength, and all your mind. He's quoting from that Old Testament law. And Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So, so far, so good, right? He gives a great answer that Jesus approves of. And what we can glean so far from this exchange is this. Whatever the question, love is the answer right? Love is always the answer. 
It starts with God, love God with all that you are. It starts with God as all things do, and it flows from there. Love God, love people. Now that is simple, yet worth a lifetime of practice, right? It's simple, yet increasingly difficult to find. But it's good to be reminded that it's all about love. After the Apostle Paul teaches in one of his letters about being a part of the church body and that each of us has gifts to share and a function to fulfill, we talked about that quite a bit last month. After Paul teaches about that, he then says this, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give, this is touching a little bit more on our subject this month, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. In this, Paul is saying you can stack up all the religious credentials and even all the good deeds, right? And even all the sacrifice, maybe beyond what most of us would even uh, think of doing. But if it's not done in love, it means nothing. Nothing is gained without love. Love is what makes it all count. Everything not done in love, from love, will be and really needs to be swept away. It comes to nothing. So clearly we're seeing how important love is. It's an unstoppable force. When we find ourselves tapped into and experiencing God's love, we begin to realize it is an always expanding force. It is drawing people. It is including people. It is always forgiving, always listening, always respecting and seeking to understand. When we say yes to Jesus and His love, we are aligning ourselves with a flow that never ceases. The sun never ceases to shine, whether it's behind some snowy clouds on a Sunday morning. And God's love never ceases to do the same. That means there's always a next step of love for us to take. That means that as we are striving as best as we know how to be people who are in that flow of love, then we become part of a virtuous cycle of love and compassion and mercy. Instead of a vicious, vitriolic cycle that our society currently seems to be pretty stuck in of hate or division or cynicism, we must escape that. Find a flow in God's love. Now, it's easy for any of us to miss this on any given day, that is for sure. And the expert in the law certainly did. As we're about to see, he was looking for a loophole. Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, Luke says. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, Jesus, I I don't totally like the answer, even though I gave it. Uh, I don't like where this is going, so I'm going to push for another answer. I want to tweak this just a little bit. Okay, love my neighbor, that's fine, but really, who exactly are we talking about here? Who is my neighbor? Or, perhaps more honestly, who isn't? my neighbor, Jesus. Who am I allowed to not love? If we were to stop and think and look in our own dark hearts sometimes, I don't think I'm the only one here 
who might feel this way. I resonate with this guy. I wonder if underneath it all, would I really love it if God gave me some permission? Here's a list of people that get on my nerves too, Rob. Right? You can't, I, you know, you get a free pass on them. It reminds me of something that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that, in that sermon, he says this to the crowd. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the law didn't say hate your enemy. But people had added that because they had gotten religious and, and had, had decided to create some rules. So they did define who my neighbor was. And that there were people who you could love and then there were people you were allowed to not love. And Jesus breaks that wide open. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. There's that flow again, right? Our Father in heaven never ceases to love. And so when we become more and more like Him, we will find ourselves simply loving more and more people more and more. Love your neighbor. And everyone, Jesus says, is your neighbor. Even those you might consider your enemy. He goes on just to really tighten the screws on this. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind to your friends, if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Pagans meaning people who simply don't know God, don't know better. So if that's the way you and I were to operate, then we're missing all of the goodness of what it means to be believers in the gospel. Jesus says, love your, your, your enemies. They're your neighbors, too. Now, confession time. Who hoped that Friday's high winds would blow all your leaves into your neighbor's yards? <laughs> miraculously, somehow miraculously leaving yours clear. Yeah, that's not love, right? That's not love. What, is, what are we talking about here? Well, this is a recurring theme in the Scriptures. Here's just three quick instances throughout the New Testament. Paul writes to the Romans, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, echoing what we just saw in this exchange between the expert in the law and Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. James writes it this way, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Those are just three examples. So we can simplify and, and hone this down to this very uh, memorable uh, phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. But is love simply a generalized nice feeling or good vibes for my neighbors? When the Bible says love, is it meant to be more, more for them, and also more for and from me? I think it is. And Jesus tells a story to illustrate this very point. So this is what happens. Jesus decides to tell him this story in reply. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. This would have been easy for his listeners to visualize. In fact, this was a bit of a treacherous path between those two cities. And so it, it can happen, and they could picture that. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this is a dramatic beginning to Jesus' story, right? 
Anyone listening is going to want to know what is going to happen next. They feel the plight of this guy, but it is an accurate opening to countless stories being lived out all around us. It's as old as time, and it is a description of our own world's desperate situation. There's a need to be met. There's a wrong to be righted. There's a good to be done. And this is the opening scene, a man in need. What's going to happen next? Verse 31, a priest. Oh, okay. As soon as Jesus says that, everyone might, becoming, uh, might, might assume, oh, good things are about to happen here. Lucky, lucky for him that a priest was about to walk by. Of all people, this is good news. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, so this is someone who, by heredity, is a, a, a servant in the temple. Again, an a, a esteemed um, person of, of, their, uh, of their religion, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And so immediately we see a couple of things. Jesus is adding two characters to the story, a priest and a Levite. And again, Anyone who is listening would immediately begin to think, oh, this is the best news of all. This is great. Because people who will surely help are actually the next ones to come down the road. This is, this is great. Lucky for our guy. But then Jesus introduces the fact that they saw him and passed by. Something is seriously wrong here in the second scene, second movement of Jesus' story. And every good story has tension, and Jesus has immediately introduced it here, we see the ones representing the God of love being unloving. Our man is bleeding out, and no one is helping him. Now, this reminds me of the fact that when we're watching a show or a movie, sometimes Tamara ends up watching me, because I get involved. I get involved in what's happening in the story. I'm, I'm biting my nails, or I'm yelling back at the TV, don't do that! Why are you doing that? Why would they do that? Right? I just don't want to see, I hate it when the characters do what's worse for them or what's worse for others or they're lying or they're doing something. And I'm just like, you're going to make it worse for yourself. Don't do that. That's exactly what Jesus' listeners must have been hear, feeling at this moment, hearing this part of the story. A priest, a Levite, they walk right by, hands closed, hearts shrunken. And this right here, if I were to jump forward to our modern day, is what's driving the world crazy, in my opinion. Christians must be leading the way in love, setting the example. And I think deep down, the whole world knows it. The whole world is aching to see Christians be the leaders in how to love each other and love this, this world. We have to be the people filled with love and respect for each other and then for others, not judging, not ranting. We're supposed to be the ones bursting with compassion, patience, and grace. We should be overflowing with resources to bless our world, a light that can't be missed. Unbelievable how much good comes from those people who say they follow Jesus. It's crazy how much uh, flows through them and makes our world a better place. But, un, but just like the priest and the Levite, we all can suffer from being self-absorbed, right? I think, I think the thing that might make us the most like the priest and the Levite, you, me, just, just normal people doing, doing our thing, is that we can find ourselves to be those characters in the story, maybe without even realizing it, because we've simply become distracted by our own concerns and worries, which begin to then just shrink us 
limit our view, we don't see what we need to see, and we, our compassion and our generosity just begin to shrink. I'm, I'm thinking of something else Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Now in Matthew 6, he, he looks right into our own human hearts, and he says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear, is, life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? I think I'm thinking of this because if I put myself in the shoes of the priest and the Levite, I'm thinking, they got some place to be, right? Anyone relate to that? I got some place to be. And that's what's happening, I'm thinking, perhaps, for them. They got their, they got their uh, calendar out or their appointment schedule, and they, they got an appointment uh, in the city, and so that's where they're headed. They can't be bothered. And I, maybe I'm reading myself into them, but I'm, I'm trying to ask the Lord, what makes us sometimes like the priest and the Levite? And I go straight to this thought about Jesus saying, do not worry. And he hearkens right here to the idea that life is more than the things we worry about. In this case, food and clothes. And he's talking about worth and value. Is not life more? Is not life more? What is really going to count? Look at the birds of the air, he goes on. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. That takes us back to last week's parable, right? The rich fool did nothing but store away in barns. In fact, that ended up being kind of uh, his legacy. I was the guy who stored everything in barns and didn't share and just kept it all to myself. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, reap, store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, again, he's asking a question of worth and value. Are you not much more valuable than they? Is not life much more than food and clothes? Are you not much more valuable than the birds of the air? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life, he says. And of course, the assumed and correct answer is no. See, generosity begins with simply trusting God as our provider and being generous with who we are and then what we have. And so we cannot let worry rob us. And I don't just mean worry as in hand-wringing or, or anxiety and sleepless nights. Sometimes worry looks like hurry, right? And that hurry will drive us from Jerusalem to Jericho and back again, ignoring anything that God might put in our path that might be a way to show love and compassion. Worry is a permanent thief, and we can never really recover what it steals away. Worry never adds, it only subtracts. So Jesus concludes, don't worry, saying, what are we gonna eat, what shall we drink, what are we gonna wear? But the pagans run after all these things. In other words, people who don't know God run after those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So as we think about being generous people, open, hands, big hearts. That comes, that is built on and, and springs from the idea that we are a people provided for, as evidenced then by that openness and generosity, because we know that God is with us and taking care of us, and we trust Him. And it's from there that our contentment can rest, and then our generosity can flow. But if I'm chasing something, right, the pagans run after all these things. If I'm chasing all that success or promotion or just more money or a bigger house or you name it, when I'm chasing those things, then that means they are leading me, right? I'm going wherever they tell me to go. I'm chasing it. Then we're out of order, right? It's easy to see when we say that on a Sunday morning. It's hard to live out sometimes during the week for any of us. But when I'm running after 
it means I might walk right by something I need to pay attention to. So that's what self-absorption can look like, and it can happen and does happen to all of us. And I won't even go into self-righteousness, which also might be something these guys were dealing with. They look at the guy and think, yeah, he got, probably got what he deserved. That would never happen to me. Or the religion of being self-made. I don't need anyone's help, and I shouldn't have to give it either. There are all kinds of ways that we can get ourselves off track. I feel like probably for most of us, it's going to be that self-absorbed, right? We're just kind of focused in on our stuff because we're busy and we got a lot of things to do. But maybe self-righteous or self-made gets in there too. I just don't have time to go into all those. So self-absorbed is the one that I chose to focus on and felt led to focus on. Maybe that is not only me. Maybe that touches you too. Jesus' story, though, continues. Okay, what's going to happen next? Our guy is still here. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, Jesus says. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, this is another masterful stroke of Jesus' storytelling. Because Jesus' listeners would have considered Samaritans ethnic and racial outcasts, far from God, out of his favor, wrong in their theology, and just the people that they were in the rejected column. In fact, they were very much in the column of people I don't have to love. And he makes one the hero of the story. He is prying open their prejudices by doing so. The priest and the Levite are full of privilege and power, upstanding, admired, busy, and blessed. And they walked right by. The Samaritan was moved. In fact, that's the word where it says he took pity on him. The word is also translated straight up compassion, which shows up elsewhere, of course, in the scriptures. And compassion means, as we talked about before here, to be moved in your guts. To be moved with compassion. Love produces compassion. And that's exactly what happens for the Samaritan. He, the one no one would have suspected, was actually the one moved by compassion. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his book, Strength to Love, about this very parable. And he said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's compassion. That's love. That's loving your neighbor. In all our consideration and even our debate today on issues of justice, I feel like it's really this question that gets lost. The man has been robbed. The man is beaten and bleeding. And while we debate the merits or clarify our definitions, people die for lack of love and mercy and compassion, if not physically, then spiritually. We're going to see now the openness of the Samaritan man contrasted with The first two guys, the priest and the Levite. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Totally out of his way, all at his own expense, as we'll see in a moment. I have to say, when I read this parable, I really do feel like, if it's working correctly, the church is not unlike this inn. 
caring for the one in need, applying the spiritual balm, that when we bring our own neighbors, our friends, our family members to church, when we introduce them to Jesus, when we simply show them some love that can pave the way for a yes to Jesus, we are doing much of the same ministry as this Samaritan man. It says, the next day he took out two denarii. Denarii is worth a day's wage for a day laborer. He took out two of those, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is generosity. This is compassion. This is love. His compassion cost him, right? Wasn't, again, this is beyond good vibes and nice feelings. It's practical. It's action-oriented. On his own donkey. Takes him to the inn. Takes care of him. He's going to come back and check on him. This is loving one's neighbor. And this stranger was a neighbor. Total stranger. Made in God's image. So that Jesus turns then now to the expert after telling this short story. Which of these Three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This summer, um, Tamara and I invited uh, our nine closest neighbors over for a cookout. We just kind of figured, hey, we need to get to know our neighbors better, and we've all been locked up for a while here, right? Uh, everyone separated and distanced and all that stuff. So we, the two on either side and the five across the street, we invited them over. A little more than half of them were able to make it, and it was a blast. Diverse ages, races, sexual orientations, professions, stages of life, we had a delightful time. I can testify, loving your neighbor is fun. Loving your neighbor is fun. And I would encourage you to do something very similar to that, uh, perhaps, and get to know your neighbors, those people made in the image of God. Some may know Jesus, all will need to know Jesus if they don't, amen? And that knowing of Jesus doesn't happen apart from love. It just doesn't. In Jesus' kingdom, love is not allowed to remain a nice idea or a sentiment we simply agree with. Love opens our hands and enlarges our hearts. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, and she famously said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. She was right and is right. So friends, let's love and give. Give of our time. Give of our tithes and offerings. Give gifts to others. Give help. Give grace. Give the benefit of the doubt. Give thought before we speak and prayer before we act. Let's give when it's inconvenient. Let's give when no one but God will ever know. And let's give because we love. And because love is what it's all about. Let's go and do likewise. Let's pray about that. Lord, help us to be people who do go and do the likewise that we've seen in this parable. Jesus, you so, just so deftly taught this expert in the law, the lesson that all of us need and need and need and need and need. So Lord, we thank you for that. And as we think about our own lives, and all of us can confess, I'm sure, how narrow sometimes we can get, how focused on our own things that we got going on. We need moments like this one, before your word, with our own hearts, open to your spirit, 
to, to pry us in a way back open, to, to ease us toward back again, that love that you give so we can walk in your flow and then share it with others. That's our prayer, Lord. We thank you that you're eager to, to answer a prayer like that one. Fill us with your love. In your name we pray. Amen.